Hello, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up for liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white folks, and white Christians specifically, who are realizing that to follow Jesus in this time and in this country means to listen, learn from, and join in struggles against racism and white supremacy. We would love to hear what you think, and especially welcome feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Margaret Ernst, and I'm recording again from my kitchen table in Nashville, Tennessee. It's recently gotten colder and finally feels like fall in Nashville, which for me as a northerner living here is very welcome after what feels like about nine months of summertime. There's beautiful purple flowers in a glass bottle on my kitchen table, and they come from an annual meeting at a church where I recently started serving as a student pastor. It's a role that admittedly feels very new and scary for me, and I'm knee-deep with questions about what doing ministry in and through the institutional church means for me. You see, I'm someone who's had my faith most deeply formed by faith-rooted organizing and interfaith movements for social justice. And though I've done a lot of church throughout my life, church for me mostly has been the resisting communities I'm a part of more than anything else. But now I'm also serving as a pastor. So that's something I'm figuring out. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice in Nashville. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith. About an hour south of here, in a town called Shelbyville, Tennessee, there's a white supremacist rally scheduled for next Saturday, October 28th. Many of the groups involved in planning the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, have organized this one. They originally planned to call it Unite the Right 2.0, but now they've changed the name of the rally to White Lives Matter. They chose Shelbyville because Shelbyville has been the site of lots of refugee resettlement in recent years, particularly among Somalis, and it's also home to a growing Latinx community. Across the country, neo-Nazi groups, neo-Confederates, and white nationalists, as we speak, are continuing to organize to try to win the hearts and minds of white folks. They're putting forward a story and a narrative online and in real life, enforced with very real violence. And that narrative is that this nation should be for whites only, for white Christians only. This narrative is certainly not new, but since Trump's election has become more mainstreamed, for years the national anti-refugee movement has used this state, Tennessee, as a testing ground for some of the most anti-immigrant policies. In fact, it has been so successful that right now, Tennessee's state legislature is actually suing the federal government to try to stop refugee resettlement in Tennessee. W.E.B. Du Bois was famous for saying, as the South goes, so goes the nation. That means if you can do transformative work for collective liberation in the South, you can do it anywhere. And people do all the time. I've been so fortunate to learn from Southern organizers and faith leaders about what hope really is. The commitment to keep fighting and envisioning even when everything seems stacked against you, 
because you love your people, because you believe in where you come from, because you refuse to let hate and death win there. As the community in Shelbyville and the surrounding area prepares for next weekend, it means that people of faith and conscience across the state are asking themselves, what do we do? What would it mean to show up as an embodied person of faith in ways that could, tra- could attract physical violence next weekend? How do white people show up in ways that don't cause more risk for people of color? And perhaps more importantly, how do we do the long-haul work of out-organizing Nazis and not just show up when they come to town? These are hard questions, but we have to be willing to ask them and also take the risk that we're invited to by faith. No matter how we choose to resist or imagine, we can't fall back. As we prepare to think about this week's text, let's take a few breaths together to hold some of these questions. While you connect to the ground and the place where you are right now, I want you to particularly hold the community of Shelbyville, Tennessee, in your heart and mind as well. talking about the Matthew text for this week, and also Psalm 96, which I think has an important lens on the Matthew text. We find ourselves here in Matthew 22 after a season of very perplexing parables from Jesus. If you've been tracking these texts, you know that we started with the mustard seed and the parable of the sower and all sorts of parables about vineyards and tenants, and last week, the parable of the wedding banquet. These parables are not easy to unpack, and as Reverend Ann talked about a couple weeks ago, some of them are really problematic. But no matter what exactly they are saying or how we read them, we know that by now in the story, Jesus has been getting people very excited in talking about what this kingdom of God might look like in ways that are very different from the empire of Rome. The text for this week picks up when Pharisees and Herodians have approached Jesus to ask him a question. It's a question that presumably will try to get him to portray his allegiance either to the movement against Rome or to Rome itself. After approaching him with a compliment, which might just be propriety, proprietary or even mocking, they ask him, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now, what comes off as a little odd in this story is that the Herodians and the Pharisees were not likely allies with each other. To find them just randomly walking around with each other trying to frame Jesus is a little suspect. So yes, the Herodians, the supporters of Rome's Jewish client King Herod Antipas, were in rivalry with Jesus' movement. But they were in rivalry with Jesus for very different reasons than the Pharisees. The Pharisees, like most of the Jewish people at the time, would have been likely opposed to paying taxes to the emperor because it was blasphemous when Rome's sovereignty was not legitimate in the land. The Herodians, however, relied on Rome to keep their power. 
including on the system of taxation on provincial colonies like Judea. Does this show us how unlikely political bedfellows can collaborate with each other if there's, they're trying to get against something they're opposed to? Maybe. But I also wonder whether Matthew was lumping the Pharisees in with the widely hated Herodians to further distance his movement away from the Pharisees. Remember that different groups of Jews are portrayed in these texts often very polemically by their offers. So we have to use suspicion and push back when we think that the gospel writers might be oversimplifying things for their agenda. Matthew is often framed in terms of a conflict that the author or authors might have had with a local synagogue. Because remember, at the time of the gospel's writing, Judaism and Christianity were not two distinct religions. This is why we get so many texts that have been easily manipulated to support anti-Jewish violence. As Christians later removed the texts from their context and erased the fact that Matthew's community was a Jewish community in conflict with a different Jewish community. We have to be responsible for conveying that in our preaching and teaching, especially when Nazis are rallying an hour away. But even further, what we can see from this week's text is that what Jesus is really in conversation with here is not about the Jesus movement versus the Jews, but about the different ways that members of his community responded to and made negotiations with empire. What is clear in the story is that Jesus is asked a controversial question in a very, very tense time. It's a time leading up to Passover when revolutionary activity was in the air. Because Passover is a time when people remember God liberating them from imperial, imperial control. There had also been a tax revolt two decades earlier, and that had been crushed by, with impunity by the Romans. So if Jesus says that folks shouldn't pay taxes to Rome, he could be accused of sedition. And he and his movement could meet the same violent fate of those who had led the tax revolt before. If he says that people should pay taxes, it would let down his own followers. He would look like a sellout to them. In Jesus' time, there was not separation from religion in the political and civic world. That's a modern invention. So if we read this text about as a separation of religion and politics, it's, it's actually anachronistic. Such a separation would have made no sense to the listeners or writers of these gospel stories in the time of Jesus. In the world of the gospels, in a colonized world of the gospels, religious questions were all inherently political questions. Jesus' God is one concerned not with individual salvation, but with collective salvation. Not just privatistic religion, but a whole community's deliverance from Rome and oppression. And just like in our movements today, there were a lot of different opinions about how to respond to those immediate conditions. Today we might hear ourselves asking, should we boycott places that do harm? Where shouldn't we boycott? Should we have nonprofit status or not? Should we be committed to nonviolence at all costs or be prepared to defend ourselves? These are some of the questions that are swirling around now. And as to the kinds of questions and controversies in his own community, Jesus actually didn't give folks the benefit of easy answers. To the question about paying taxes to Rome, 
he turns it back to the questioners. He asks them to pull out a Roman denarius coin, a coin which had the head of Caesar on it, presenting the emperor as divine. And then he talks in a riddle, saying, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and give to God what is God's. So Jesus turns it back on them. In order to work it out, they have to answer, and so do we. What is due to God? To whom is our allegiance? God or the emperor? Another Jewish group active in Jesus' time called the Zealots militantly resisted Rome. They were known for saying, all things are due to God. You can imagine them chanting it in the streets. All things are due to God. The very clear implication was that the land of Judea is God's land, not Rome's. But this was not just a fringe understanding of the zealots that came out of nowhere. All throughout the Hebrew Bible, God is praised in ways that say over and over again that everything belongs to God. This theme, a controversial theme in the kind of context they would have been written in, cries out from Psalm 96, another one of our texts for today. The psalmist writes, Sing to the Lord a new song. For, the great, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Sing to the Lord a new song. To declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works are among all the peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The Lord is king. Now, just like we have to do work with the Matthew text in order to read against the ways it could be read to support anti-Semitism, we also have to engage with Psalm 96 in ways that do not further religious supremacy of any kind. In a world where Christians have a brutal legacy of trying to erase and suppress the worship practices of others, we have to enter with caution here even into a psalm with some beautiful poetry. We might imagine how a text like this and so many others like it have been used to assert Christian domination over indigenous peoples, over enslaved Africans, over people today who continue to be proselytized for the sake of furthering Christian empire. So if we do choose to talk about this psalm, we have to be able to talk about it and to lift up what the lesson here could be about idols in ways that do not assert Christian supremacy. What I see in the connection between these two texts is that the resor- we do have resources for resisting imperial theology, imperial theology which calls things that are holy that are not holy. And so when I use the language of false gods or idols, I don't mean the gods of indigenous peoples in the Americas, or Hindu gods, or Yoruba gods. I mean the things we can get confused about that we think are divine, things we believe are of ultimate concern, things we might give weight to above all else that are not really holy. The Roman Empire in the time of Jesus was held together by vast war-making, 
brutal suppression of revolts, and something else. Theology. The cult of the emperor developed after Rome shifted from a republic to an empire. After Roman religion, which used to be under control of the Senate, became under control of one person, the emperor. Caesar Augustus was a shrewd empire builder, and he knew enough to not try to stop people from worshiping their own gods throughout the empire. But under Roman religion under Caesar, you had to receive honor from the gods by going through honoring the emperor. He was depicted as the buffer between humanity and the gods. So as long as you honor the cult of the emperor, you could retain your own gods too. So if Judaism or any other cult or religion in the empire proved a threat to the stability of that order, it would need to be dealt with. Looking back through the eyes of Psalm 96 and through other parts of the tradition that say to have no other gods but but God, that's the first commandment, remember, we can see the kind of religious and political world that Jesus is and others wrestling with Roman occupation of Judea would have been wrestling with. If your tradition says that Caesar is not God and everything belongs to God, including the land you live on, then, well, you've got a mandate for revolution. I think, though, the incredible thing about Jesus' response here is that by using a riddle and turning the question back to the questioners, He actually opens this discourse up to so much more than a question about whether or not to pay taxes. He calls us to turn away from any form of false worship of the empire. He calls us to look at at all places where our allegiances are mixed, to look at where we get confused about what is God and what is not God, to look at where we are hypocrites. I expect a lot of liberals and progressives will feel comfortable questioning allegiance to Caesar this week. If we don't like Trump, and if most of the people sitting in our pews don't like Trump either, there's a lot of us who might not want to pay our taxes to the empire under Trump. But what about empire under Hillary Clinton, had she won? What about empire under Teddy Roosevelt or Thomas Jefferson, or the other presidents and leaders that our ancestors elected or lived under. American empire did not start in 2016. As horrible as 45 is, we're fooling ourselves if we preach this week thinking that what it means to resist or question our allegiance to Caesar is just to question our allegiance to Trump. Empire knows no party affiliation. We can elect Democrats and still be serving empire. We can elect moderate Republicans and still be serving empire. We can elect progressive social democrats and still be serving empire. When we stand and preach in buildings that are on colonial and colonized occupied land, we are extending and maintaining empire. Heck, I'll look at myself. I learned all of this history about the Roman Empire from a divinity school that got a huge endowment from investing in the stock market. That is deeply extending and maintaining empire. So none of us are pure of empire ties, especially not in the church. Even our most radical and imaginative social movements can be co-opted to serve domination interests. And the history of the Jesus movement transforming into imperial Christianity is a number one example of that. 
so I think Jesus is stretching our imaginations not to get overwhelmed by thinking about our purity, but to keep, keep pushing us to give to God what is God's. That includes our lives and service to liberation. This text intends to question our allegiances in all places. It intends to let us not be satisfied. And I think one of the major and most important ways it pushes us in our context today is to help our people, to help white Christian folk especially, to turn away from worship of whiteness. There's a book called Race, a Theological Account. It's by J. Cameron Carter. And if you've got maybe a few months, depending on how long it'll take you to get through it, it's a long book. I highly, highly recommend it when you can. Carter talks about whiteness as a Christian heresy. He says that it developed partly as Western Christian thought divorced Jesus from his Jewish roots. Carter says that he said this was a major factor in the social construction of race as we know it today. In becoming white and creating the idea of whiteness, white Christians set themselves up as the definer of the identities of the whole rest of the world. That's a problem called self-enclosure, in which humans try to be God, trying to create their own reality. And that's why the doctrine of whiteness, as heresy, replaces the doctrine of creation. We also might think of it as an idol, as Psalm 96 inspires us to try to resist. White supremacy is an idol in how it tries to delineate what is sacred and profane, what is holy and sinful. This can be seen no better than in our social geography. Look at our systems of policing and who and what places are seen as worth protecting. The protection of white property and white life over all else and at any cost is what Kelly Brown Douglas calls stand your ground culture. We have a false sense that we as white people should have control over the world, our stuff and our surroundings, that we must have this security at all costs. But it's a security that's not a true security. It's enforced by violence, whether that's of the police or of vigilantes or of our own white fragility. As an idol, we white folks can get a false sense of security even over death and chaos itself. Alan talked about this in his podcast a few months ago as well. You should listen to that one if you haven't. It's called, We're All Going to Die. Worshiping white supremacy as an idol translates into a false sense of goodness, too. We believe that white people are inherently good and guilt-free. Mass murderers who are white are described as troubled or their motives as mysterious and unknown when people of color are called terrorists within seconds. The idol of whiteness will not save us. Jim Perkinson writes that whiteness is one of the modern-day sites of idolatrous seduction, 
a place where many of us are summoned by Caesar or by Caesar's investment banker to pinch incense to the gods. He continues saying, whether we choose to be included in the empire or not, to honor the sovereign and embrace the disciple or to turn to a different power, that's a theological decision. So to close, let's just remind ourselves of some of the things that are not God that we might get confused into thinking are God. Our institutions are not God. The church is not God. The American flag is not God. Our reputations and our egos are not God. Comfort, convenience, and safety are not God. And one more time, whiteness is not God. So, white people, white Christians, what will our new song be? How do we turn away from false worship? Let these texts this week crying out to us from the histories of people who were colonized trouble us. We need it. for white ministers, for us to theologize about whiteness is only legitimate as it serves the abolition of the false idol of white supremacy itself. So this work between us cannot be navel-gazing, and nor can it be neutral. That's why we're encouraging listeners to not only take these commentaries into account, but to also deepen your action. I commit to deepening mine, but figuring out how I can be of service to the community of Shelbyville leading up to next week's rally, following the leadership of people of color and movement that I'm in relationship with. Every day, I also commit to new and better ways to invite the church that I'm serving here in Nashville to show up against racism, including within our own walls. My action for you today is to consider how your faith community is paying Caesar. If you go to a church, where does it bank? If you lead a church, does it have investments? Are you afraid to do something as a faith leader because of 501c3 status? Talk to some other folks about it and ask yourselves, what's a step we can make to divest from empire and redirect resources to communities struggling to get free? Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org. And our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website. 
which includes references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct action in other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. Till next time, may the source of life lead you from death to life, from falsehood to truth. May the true peace of justice fill your universe and every molecule of your being. Builders must be strong.